Hello and welcome to PW Kids Cast, the children's book podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors and illustrators creating books for children and teens. I'm John Sellers, the children's reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. Today I'm speaking with acclaimed author Christopher Paul Curtis. His previous books for children include the Newbery Honor winning The Watsons Go to Birmingham, 1963, the Newbery Medal winning Bud Not Buddy, and the Newbery Honor winning Elijah of Buxton. Curtis's latest book, The Journey of Little Charlie, is being published this month by Scholastic Press, which is sponsoring this podcast. In The Journey of Little Charlie, readers meet 12-year-old Little Charlie Bobo, the son of a sharecropper who dies in a freak accident in the book's early pages. Because his father has left behind unpaid debts, little Charlie, who's actually quite large and strong for his age, is forced to accompany a brutal man named Captain Buck North as he attempts to track down fugitives accused of stealing. It's not until well into the journey, though, that little Charlie comes to better understand who Captain Buck is really after. Thanks for speaking with me, Christopher. Thank you, John. It's my pleasure. In some of your previous books, you've, you've written about the Canadian community of Buxton, uh, which became a refuge for those escaping slavery in the United States. Um, and Buxton factors into this book, too. Um, what do you think it is that originally drew you there and then and keeps drawing you back? Uh, when I first uh, went to the museum in Buxton, and when I say museum, it's a very small house, really, that has been transformed into a museum, uh, I was fascinated uh, by not so much by the displays at the museum, but by the land around the place where, that was cleared by people who had escaped slavery in uh, eight, in the 1840s. Um, and they would come to Buxton and they were required to purchase a 50 acre plot. And you think, well, where's a slave going to have money to purchase something? They were given loans and they had to clear the land and they sold the lumber, and within three years, everybody had sold off their 50-acre, uh, had paid off their debt for the 50 acres. And it was a very fascinating place because it was one of the few slave settlements that actually prospered. Most of them collapsed soon after they were established. And you can understand this because uh, these people were not skilled any type of administrative things. They were former slaves. Buxton had very strict rules that they had to follow. And I, I learned the rules that they followed, and I could understand the pride that they felt in maintaining this place. And I can remember as I was writing uh, notes for the first book, Elijah of Buxton, I just kept thinking, oh my goodness, I hope nobody else is trying to write something about this because it was just so full of stories. There was so many just interesting things that were in the notes that were there. And now this story uh, is told from the point of view of little Charlie, who's a white, you know, sharecropper's son. Um, but from your author's note, it sounded like that wasn't necessarily your original idea. What did you first think this story was going to be, and, and how did it change? I have discovered that one of the real delights of being a writer is that you don't know where the story is going to go, or I don't know where the story is going to go. And it's a, a journey for me, just like it was a journey for Charlie, it was a journey for me. My original intent was to write the story from two different perspectives, from the perspective of a white Southern sharecropper uh, boy, 12-year-old, and from the perspective of an escaped African-American who had been living in Canada for many years and uh, who the sharecropper was kind of shanghaied into going to capture and bring back. Uh, so when you're doing something like that, you have to decide whose story you're going to write first or if you're going to do it alternating. And I decided to start with Charlie, little Charlie Bobo, because uh, I thought he had the farthest journey to make. 
And so as I got into the story and uh, started hearing Charlie's voice and started getting an appreciation of who he was and who his character, what his character was, I realized that this book was going to be little Charlie's, that uh, the other boy, uh, the 12-year-old African-American boy, was going to have to wait. And when you talk about... um you know, little Charlie having maybe the bigger journey to make, is that not necessarily a reference to a physical journey that he's making, even though he does travel quite a distance in the book? Right. No, yeah. The the journey of little Charlie, of course, can be taken either way. It's a, you know, a physical journey that he makes, but it's also a journey of discovery of who he is and what he is capable of doing. And this is something that he wouldn't have happened if he'd stayed uh, in South Carolina uh, sharecropping because most people in the United States, uh, African Americans, white people, didn't travel much fi- beyond five miles beyond their home for their whole life. So this journey that Charlie was taking was uh, a great physical journey, but it was also a spiritual journey for him because it's where he grew up and where he learned to appreciate who he was and, and appreciate others. Did you find it uh, pretty easy to get into his his head and his mindset and his voice? Um, since you did start with him as a character? Very easy. And I can tell I'm doing the story well if the character comes to me right away. My, my, the way I write is I'll usually go to the library or uh, for this one, I was going to a coffee shop because the library wasn't open early enough for me. I go to the library, I sit down, I feel as though I'm uh, talking to the character. And, and then I start to take dictation. They tell me what is going on and where the story is going. And I go from there. And I can know I've got it. Uh, I've got a good grasp on the character. If when I sit down, there's not a lot of doodling or I'm not online looking at something. If I'm right in the story and the character starts talking to me right away and Charlie spoke to me right away. So I I felt like I really captured something with Charlie. I'm not sure if this is the right way to think of it, but what do you think is the advantage uh, of having a white narrator, a young white narrator, tell this particular story? Um, it gives a different perspective with uh, because all of my other books, uh, with the exception of the one before, which I did with alternating chapters between a white boy and a black boy, uh, are, have been narrated by young African-Americans. And I think that looking at the slave story from a different point of view uh, from the person who was a slave catcher uh, makes it more interesting. And I was faced with problems with that because when I was, uh, it took me a long time to really get the, I don't want to say courage, but the, to feel, I was to feel as though I was capable of writing a story about slaves because when you're writing first person, you have to become that person. And I, I didn't think that I could become a slave because uh, it's, it's such a horrible state of mind that you'd have to be in. You'd have to convince yourself that you were an animal. And worse, you'd have to convince your children that they were animals. So I didn't think I could do it. So when I, I first went to Buxton that time, I realized I could write it from the point of view of the first young person that was born in Buxton. And that way I was able to get into writing about slavery without the poison and the post-traumatic stress of being an actual slave. I thought I could be more honest with it. And it was the same thing with Charlie. I wanted to get to the point where I could be inside the head of this young uh, white sharecropper. 
And I, I don't think people are all that much different. So it was, it was really quite an easy transition for me to get into Charlie. And I think the going from the point of view of a white person, as I said, gives a different perspective to the story. You know, there are ongoing refugee crises around the world, and there, there are conversations closer to home about who is allowed to enter or stay in the country. Uh, were those things on your mind at all as this story was coming together? Not originally, but as I said, some of the time when I'm writing the story, I'll go to the newspapers and I'll, I'll check things that are going on. And I was really struck with uh, the similarities of things that are happening today. And then I read an article yesterday about an African refugee who was uh, who had come to the United States. And then with all this talk of getting rid of refugees and this anti this anti immigrant fever that seems to be going on, uh, became justifiably afraid of their safety in the United States. So they did what African-Americans did in the 1850s, and they came across the border into Canada. And uh, this, and it's it's quite tragic, really, because this uh, young man from Togo, I believe he was, came across the border and wasn't really prepared for the cold. You know, I, I don't think if you if people tell you how cold it gets, but I don't think unless you've really experienced cold, that you can appreciate what it is. And he came uh, across the border and got into Canada and was given uh, refugee status. But he lost all 10 of his fingers to frostbite. And it, it just it's one of the things that's really kind of mind boggling that we we have a very similar situation going on today. Uh, that was taking place in the 1840s and the 1850s. Your, your first book, uh, the, the Watsons Go to Birmingham, received a Newbery Honor right out of the gate, and it was only the first of several Newbery Honors and a medal that you would get. Looking back, what, what effect did that have on you, both in terms of your career trajectory, but also when it comes time to go to the library and sit down and write? Um, it has a tremendous effect. It uh, It gives you a... Writers are insecure people, and it gives you some security. You realize that you're sitting there, you're writing, and it happens to me all the time. Even today, I sit, I'll write something, I think, boy, this is really good. And then I'll read it again three days later, and I, I'm embarrassed at what I've written. But when you have something like that, um, it shows that other people can appreciate what you're doing, and it, it gives you inspiration to keep going. Um it also, one of the things that it does is it, uh, when, I, when the Watsons go to Birmingham, uh, won the Newbery Honor, it put a lot of pressure on me, uh, which I didn't realize until I'd go to like IRA or uh, to American Library Association. And I'd be asked, oh, you won a Newbery Honor with your first book. What are you going to do with the second one? And I, I kind of was in a conundrum and I thought, wow, what am I going to do? And then I realized what I had to do was sit down, put myself in the exact same frame of mind that I wrote the first one, and not think anything about uh, what kind of accolades the first book had gotten. I just had to write a story in the same way that I did uh, with the Watsons, and uh, that turned out to be but not buddy. You know, as someone who's been writing books for children for, for more than 20 years, has anything surprised you about how the business has changed, or maybe even how your interactions with children have changed over the years? I, I don't really see uh I, I live of course in Windsor and I think if it was in if I was living in New York or a major US city, 
that it would be different. But I don't really see a lot of changes uh, from the as far as the industry goes, uh, because it's, it's not that much presented to me, really. It's, it's not in my face like that. Uh, there are things I can see. There, there are trends to uh, try to be more inclusive. Uh, I know the publishers are working hard toward doing, towards doing that. Um, but and as far as interactions with children, uh, I, I really haven't noticed any different. The young people uh, today are pretty much the same as the young people were when I first started going out. Uh, and it's almost 25 years ago. And uh, it's really one of the favorite parts for me of being a writer is going to schools and talking to young people. And I, I have a riot. I, um, I I go and I tease and I'm laughing with them and I'm joking with them. And, and we have a really good rapport. I, I lucked up in that I like to talk to children. And uh, you would think that after 25 years, it'd be a different kind of child. But I think that children, childhood is a, a state of mind, really, that is pretty much constant through the years. I think that the children of today are not that much different than the children 25 years ago who are not that much different of the children 100 years before that. I know, of course, there are technological things and different kinds of pressures on young people. But I think the state of childhood is something that is, is both universal and, and goes throughout time. So I'm very fortunate in that I'm not having to uh, follow these young people up as they grow older, at which time they would change. Uh, the young adult of 25 years ago is much different than the young adult of today. But I think with the young people that I deal with, uh, they've pretty much stayed the same. I hope you won't mind a, a slightly non-book related question, but you were born and raised and, and worked in uh, Flint, Michigan, where, where several of your books are also set. Um, you know, and that city has been in the midst of a, a water crisis that isn't really over. Um, what has it been like to watch something like that unfold as someone so intimately connected to that city? It's horrifying. It's absolutely horrifying to to think that a, a, a city is large and historically as important as Flint. Flint was at one time was a real boom town. It had the highest per capita income for African-Americans in the country. And by extension, I'm sure for African people in the world because of the factories that were there. It was the birth of the middle class in many ways uh, took place because of factories like this that gave people jobs where you didn't have to have a degree to get a good job where you could make a dignified living. Uh, and to see the things that Flint has gone through with um, uh, General Motors pulling out pretty much. At one time, there were 80,000 people in Flint employed at General Motors, and now I believe it's less than 4,000. And it's had a horrible impact on the city. The city has uh, collapsed in many ways. And then the added insult of the water of being poisoned uh, by by the drinking water. It, it's unimaginable. And even when I go to Flint now, I'll go places and there'll be a drinking fountain. I'll start to drink. And somebody will say to me, no, 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 no. And I, I, it's just very difficult to get in your head that uh, you're being poisoned by the actual water. And what I was afraid had, would happen is happening. I, I was afraid that there'd be a great reaction at first. And there was. There were billions of bottles of water were coming to Flint and then it's kind of died down and people have forgotten and they're slowly trying to 
rectify the problem with the lead in the pipes, but it's 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 not looked at with the urgency that I think it is. I'm trying really hard to do a book about the water crisis in Flint, but I'm having a real problem uh, how to approach it. it. It is so tragic and so uh, one of the, one of the things that. Uh, to me, it's just unimaginable. I have uh, a seven-year-old, a six-year-old, and a five-year-old, four-year-old. And when I think that there could have been, if I'd been living in Flint, there would have been uh, maybe a two-year period where they were being poisoned by the lead. Uh, as, as a parent, you look at your child, and every day you look at them and you wonder, is that normal what this kid is doing here? And then you to have the added burden of knowing that uh, th- that they have been poisoned. It, it's horrible. It's something that can't, just can't, uh, can't be imagined. And to think that it has happened in this country in uh, 2016, 17, 18, is uh, something that is unfathomable. Readers who spend time with your books, you know, the idea of injustice can often, you know, you, that's something that can be seen there. Uh, when you see something like what's been happening in Flint or any number of other you know, upsetting news developments. Uh, are you able to stay hopeful that that that, that justice is still something that uh, can be attainable for for all Americans? Yeah, I do stay hopeful only because there are people who fight so hard to improve things. Not not only do you have people who don't care, but you have people who, when they see a wrong, fight very hard to improve it, uh, and. That, I think, is a part of the human spirit and a part of human nature. And I I think that battles with the other part of human nature, which is greed. And a lot of the problems of Flint are because of greed, where greed and just not caring, just not caring about other people. And uh, it does my spirit good when I see how many of my fellow Flintstones have stood up, and not only Flintstones, people from other places have stood up to try to help people from Flint. And to me, that is the that is the uplifting part of the story of what's happened with Flint's water. Uh, the people that try very hard and work very hard to try to improve it and to make sure that it doesn't happen again. Well, uh, getting back to books a little bit, um, after Elijah of Buxton and uh, The Mad Men of Piney Woods, uh, uh, is a third uh, Buxton novel um, something we should be looking forward to? Well, Journey of Little Charlie is officially my third uh, Buxton novel. It, and it it doesn't, not much of it happens in Buxton. In fact, maybe the last uh, 10, 15 pages take place in Buxton. It's, it's more of uh, an emphasis on the journey. But it touches on Buxton and the people of Buxton. And what they, and I don't want to have any spoilers, but what they did to try to uh, rectify a situation that they saw was wrong. It was uh, very much empowered by the people of Buxton and Chatham in Canada. And um, so that is officially my third Buxton book. Uh, one of the things about the Buxton books is that it, it, they're not, it's Buxton and what went on there is not a story that is well-known in the United States. And I was shocked to hear that it's not well-known in Canada. It's right here in Canada, but not many people know of what happened. And I, I think that's a real tragedy because it it was a period when the Canadians were very brave in letting Americans uh, 
uh, slaves, people who had escaped slavery, come into the country and settle. And it's something they should be very proud of. Uh, the woman who runs the museum in Buxton told me that 95% of the people who come there now come because of Elijah of Buxton. And I, I just think that's crazy. I think that this is something that Canadians should be very proud of and should really be uh, much better known. And finally, I know you mentioned uh, maybe being able to write another Flint book, but is there anything else that you're working on at the moment that you're able to talk about at all? Yeah, I'm doing, uh, I'm, I just turned in a Flint book that I had done uh, that uh, takes place in 1967. Uh, and I thought it was done and I was notified by my editor that it wasn't done. So I'm going back and forth on that one. And of course she was right. Wendy Lamb, she was right about this. The uh, book means certain things. And uh, one of the really great things of being an experienced writer is you develop uh, a group of people who can give you help in guiding you as to where your story wants to go. And I've been very fortunate in, in the editors that I've had uh, with the Buxton stories and with uh, Wendy Lamb books that uh, have been very helpful to me. But I've also got people that I trust, readers that I trust, and they have given me advice about this book, too. So this book is uh, rolling along, and it takes place in Flint in the 1960s. Um, uh, I don't really want to say much more about it. Sure. Well, uh, congratulations again on this book, and thanks again for speaking with me. Well, thank you very much for having me. Once again, I've been speaking with Christopher Paul Curtis, whose new book, The Journey of Little Charlie, is out this month from Scholastic. Thank you for listening to PW KidsCast. Cast.